Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends, welcome back. Our guest this week is Dr. Isl Twomley, who is a clinical psychologist and open dialogue trainer and supervisor. She is the clinical lead of the Irish Open Dialogue implementation in West Cork, which she initiated with a successful grant. And since 2012, she and her team have been implementing open dialogue as part of the adult mental health service. This project has been very well received by service users and families alike, and has been described as transformative by the staff involved. Put succinctly, Open Dialogue is an innovative network-based approach to psychiatric care, and it could well be a future model for for mental health care in Ireland and beyond in the coming years. We invited Dr. Iselt on to discuss Open Dialogue more thoroughly, how it came about, how does it work, why is it different compared to other approaches, who who this can potentially help, and much more. For anyone who has been frustrated by the mainstream medical model, this will be a very important listen. There are alternative approaches out there helping people with a wide array of mental health conditions. I've left a link below of Isolt's bio for those who want to learn more about her and Open Dialogue. And I've also left a link below to a great documentary about Open Dialogue for anyone interested. As always, thanks to our guest Isolt for her time and thank you for listening. All the best guys. Hello friends, welcome back to the podcast. This week our guest is Dr. Iselt Twomley. Welcome Iselt, how are you keeping? How's things? Yeah, things are good. I'm sitting here looking at the screen talking to, well, at least one face at the moment. It feels very much like the last two years, so it's feeling very comfortable. Great, glad, glad to hear, glad to hear. Um, we, we love to know a little bit about the guest before we get into the subject matter. And I know it's a real difficult question to answer, but could you possibly tell us a bit about yourself and how you found your way into open dialogue? I could give it a go. It's really interesting, isn't it? What story is the one you're going to tell this time? Um, mm. Because in a way, there's a million different ones, um, which is also very open dialogue in a way. Which truth? Which truth we share today? Anyway, um, I'm a psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been working in mental health gosh, for well over maybe two, nearly three decades now. And how I got into that, I think, is is probably also relevant to open dialogue. I lived in a family where two of my family members were given diagnoses of schizophrenia. So I sort of, I guess, walked alongside um, the idea that people can have big distressing events and that other people can be involved in working with them in that way in a good or a bad way. Um, so that was part of my understanding about life and it got me really nosy and curious, which is why I did psychology. Looking back, of course, it looks really obvious that I was trying to heal my own family, but I, believe it or not, was not aware of that really very much in my 20s. I think I was much too focused on healing myself. <laughs> you know, I had my, carried my own trauma, my own, my own story. But that was sort of my clinical psychology, then working in mental health, went into mental health from a background of working actually in sexual health, working with people who'd experienced sexual trauma, uh, people who were dying of HIV, that's dated me, hasn't it? Um, yeah. and, and it was from that kind of place that I moved into mental health. And I often say that was probably one of the 
best preparations I could have had in a way because I was working with people initially when I graduated whose mental health issues were because of what's happened to them in their life. Mm. And we were much less focused on psychiatric diagnoses and much more kind of going, well, you know, how are you going to deal with this truck of crap that your life has just presented you with? And, mm. um, and I think that was the, that kind of social contextual thinking about people in relationships, thinking about things outside of diagnostic categories, which weren't so very helpful in that field, sort of meant that I moved over to mental health bringing those those kind of tools if you like Interesting. yeah okay. and then sort of thinking about how to be more human in the work i think and can i ask did, did you always you, you mentioned that you you came from a perspective where you viewed the environment and the relationships as huge contributors to to people's mental health did did mm -hmm. you kind of find yourself like there was a period over the last maybe 10, 20 years, 25 years, where this increasingly, this this was not carried out. This was not um, followed through by how we were actually treating people with certain conditions such as schizophrenia. And did you feel like a disconnect here? Like, did you feel, yeah, well, what's going on here? I think, you know, one of the things that happened when I started working as a psychologist, um, I went around and I interviewed different members of the team when I started, like, what would you, what would you like me to do? How, how can I be useful in this team? And no one had any idea in particular. And so what I ended up doing was working with people that people weren't sure how to work with, if that makes sense. So that included people with diagnosis of psychosis, but also people that people were really worried about, people who, because of their eating, were kind of at risk of dying, people who didn't want to live anymore. Um, and yeah, one of the things I think that, and I was working in a really nice team full of good people who are really trying to think about how to do the work well. But one of the things I think that came across really strongly is, regardless of how well we were trying to do the work, we weren't doing a great job. And a lot of the people who I was seeing that had been with us for quite a period of time, we were the people who were closest to them. Uh, I was working in adult mental health and and, and many of them had lost touch with close friends, weren't really out in the community, weren't really living big, big lives. And, um, and the people who were closest to them were their psychiatrist or me. And that, that was always, that's always struck me very strongly as a failure, I think, of what we were trying to do. Because mm. I think if we're thinking about what it means to heal, you're thinking about what kind of life do you have as you're moving through this crisis? Mm. So I think... There was something about that and there was something about how we didn't in in the vast majority of the service if you were lucky to get to see someone who had time which was only a small percentage of people who came to see a psychologist or a counselor somebody might spend time thinking and unpacking with you the journey of your life and how you've come to this place but the vast majority of people would have had kind of a standard interview where this would be kind of written down often in shorthand you know csa childhood sexual abuse and that would be it you know <laughs> that would be as far as it would go and then we'd be thinking about how can we manage however this is seen in your life at this time so mm. um so yeah i think i think there would have there were and are still perhaps huge disjunctures in the story of people's lives and how they can be met uh, or how we're able to meet them in mental health services. Mm. So do I do I hear correctly that uh, it was almost like the overarching industry was more more interested in finding out a particular like putting it putting them in a particular category rather than actually helping them kind of unpack their experience. I think I'm not sure that's true of how many people aim to and wish to work in psychiatric services, but it is true of the psychiatric model, full stop. The whole idea of the psychiatric model is that people who know, inverted commas slightly, mm -hmm. uh, will understand what's happening for people and find a, a category within which they fit, a category which hopefully will tell us something about how they've come to be this way and what might help. You know, that, that kind of idea that you're going to okay. find a broad category 
and it's I'm probably not the first guest you're going to have to say it's hugely problematic. It's a hugely mm. problematic system because people end up coming and they begin different diagnoses very frequently, or they have they have many diagnoses. Um, my my business partner um, Ray Waddingham, who who is kind of a, a an activist trainer uh, in in mental health, has had thirty one different diagnoses. Wow. So this is the kind of system where, on the one hand, it's supposed to provide clarity, but on the other hand, actually, we can lose the wood for the trees, kind of. Yeah. We, we miss something. Maybe we miss the tree altogether, somehow. And, and is, all, so, so, sorry, so, is, is, that, is that failure in the system what pushed you towards open dialogue therapy? Did, that, did, that, did you see that as an avenue, as a way to kind of correct um, and, and, and not put people in boxes but allowed them to explore their whole experience and from there go on to help mm. them well one of the things i think one of the things i became really interested in was how we could increase the service user voice like how could we hear more from the people that we were working with about what we we're getting right and what we could do differently and that was probably one of the main pushes because we had kind of open meetings in our community and people came through and they were sort of like, yeah, your service is very nice. There's many really good people in your service, but we don't have enough say in the decisions that are made about whether we're in hospital or other things, first of all, and family aren't included at all. Just be, you know, you don't bring, you know, they don't talk to families at all. So in one way we got a remit, I think, to explore open dialogue. And in another way, I think, I was working with so many people whose experiences of compulsory hospitalization, for example, were causing secondary trauma, you know, people for whom our system in itself, the fact that certain diagnoses, they felt they were going to have their whole lives and, and what that meant about how they viewed themselves or how they were viewed in their family. And also that we're often as teams having different conversations with people. So I might be talking to people in depth about their childhood, but they might be meeting someone else who's coming from a completely different, but we weren't talking together with the person. This kind of splitness, there was a lot of splitness, really, I think. And an open dialogue is a way of trying to do the business of mental health that is less split. You know, not, it's not, I mean, you're not going to get me saying it's perfect, but it's definitely aiming mm. to be less split. Of course, it's a really interesting to bring that up because recently we we've actually had uh, spoken to um, a couple of guests who about what well, about DID um, and they were talking about the problems of of the system of, and like you said, these people who get diagnosed uh, tens of times with different diagnoses yes. and they're just getting sent around around the houses yeah. um, and it takes them years and decades before they might actually find what it is. The diagnosis yeah. that they can then actually move forward with and help them with their lives. Uh, before we get too into the weeds of it all, I just want to to ask the very basic question, set the foundations for the conversation, which is in layman's terms, what is open dialogue? What does that mean? Yeah, awesome, awesome question. Let me try and give a layman's answer, or at least a simple one. Okay, open dialogue. Sometimes we talk about it as having three aims. It's different to anybody else who may have come in talking to you about a psychological therapy, because instead of being a psychological therapy, though it includes psychological therapy it's actually a way of doing mental health providing mental health supports so it's an entire systems model okay so it's a way of saying instead of like the psychiatric model of how we might provide mental health it's it's a different model of how we might organize mental health services how we might meet people and what kind of conversations we might have and within that it's influenced by a worldview that says people's experiences have meaning and they come from the context of their lives. And what people in distress, which includes all of us as humans, that what we need when we're in this crisis and distress is to be met, heard, and listened to, which is kind of relatively unarguable. Um, so it's, it's all of those three things put together. It's an idea about what causes distress, what might be helpful, and then it puts it into a model which says, therefore, when people are in mental health crisis, emotional crisis, this is how we should meet them. This is what we should do, which I can explain more about what that is, but that's the broad kind of idea of it. And can I ask this, this technique, did, did this come out of a similar realization that you were talking about as in were the people who founded this and created this, were they spending time with patients and realizing that also that mm -hmm. there was the most benefit from when you tried to spend time with the person 
and spend time with the person's uh, immediate family or closest friends and family? And then did it just pick up from there? Pretty much, though they took. What happened was it started in Western Lapland, in an area that had the worst outcomes uh, for many things, but in particular, they had statistics around schizophrenia. And if you were diagnosed with schizophrenia in Western Lapland, you were likely to stay in hospital for an extraordinarily long period of time, like years. And they had a lot of people in hospital. Because when you're in hospital, you're out of your life, you know. And they had a change of team in the early 1980s. Literally everybody changed. And there was a big movement at the time anyway to get people out of big hospitals, which were really not cost effective, and bring them back into the community. So there's a kind of a, an opportunity and a new team. And they spent mm, 10 to 20 years constantly trying to think about what they were doing. So open dialogue was not a model that was devised in a university and then and then implemented. Open dialogue was a result of a team working really closely in this big area, trying to go, what are we doing that seems to be helpful? And what are we doing that isn't? And how can we change that? And one of the first things that happened is they had people who were in the hospital for a very long period of time, like years, and they realized they started reading. They were reading all around themselves. You know, what's what's new? What's happening? What could be influential? And they decided to invite the family members of those people in for their yearly review. And what they realized, I've heard them speak about this. It's very moving, actually. They brought the families and the person together. And some of them hadn't seen each other since the day someone was forcibly put into hospital three, four, many years before sometimes. And they said that the trauma was as fresh, the crisis was as fresh, like everyone was crying. It was really deeply upsetting. And, uh, and I think that's when they sort of went, what are we doing? Why are we keeping people apart from people they love? Why, are, why have we been, why did we do that? How did that make sense? And that was one of the things they started to do, which was to include families or people who love people routinely in the way that they were working. And a lot of the other things that they do followed on from having those meetings and, seemed what's, and looking at what seemed to be helpful. So they have a real policy of transparency as well. They decided, I think in the mid-1980s, never to talk about clients unless they were present, which is a massive shift in the psychiatric system because normally mm-hmm. we do that in the psychiatric system all the time. We talk about people in mental health professional meetings and make decisions about them when they're not present. But they decided early on that they realized when we're away from clients, we talk about them in a way we would never talk about them in front of them and it, they didn't like it. And it didn't seem to help having joint decision-making or building relationships. So they decided to stop doing that. So it was those kinds of steps. That's how they developed. And they didn't actually use the term open dialogue until I think it was like 20 years down the line of that, of that process. And so do you believe that that kind of um, switch in terms of perspective, in terms of almost giving the the client or the patient more trust trusting their experience and also trusting that they can uh, that they're not going to talk behind their back do you think almost that in itself is healing and kind of empowering for the person i wouldn't want to speak on behalf but i would say i think it's critical one of the things that happened when i started working is we were starting to think about how we could work in a more recovery oriented way how people could reclaim their lives build back things the way that they want them to be. And um, and a big question was, how do we get people to take control back of their lives? You know, And I was like, well, maybe we should start by not taking it away from them, <laughs> like, which is what our system was doing. You know, People come in and we say, hi, yeah. you're in crisis. Don't worry yourself. We'll tell you what's wrong and we'll tell you what you need to do better. Just follow my advice and all will be well, which is, you know, there's there's, there's much of that, which I have an issue with. But the not least of which is, in my experience, I don't believe it. I think that people have the answers within themselves. I've always thought that to be true. And so how I think it's critical that we create spaces for that knowing, that wisdom, that, that kind of way forward that has a space in this crisis and in this time and how people move back together. And I think that takes, actually, that takes a lot of training and skill because we've created a system where it's very hard for people to come forth, I think, with their own ideas. Um, And I think 
when people are really listened to, they know it. And it changes how they are. And when we started off doing open dialogue, one of the things that we did is we would we would present at conferences and we used to ask, just in the clinic, we used to say, were there any family that would be willing to come and talk about their experience at the conference? You know, share what you think. And we would kind of sit in circle and people would talk with their team about the experience and we'd pay their expenses and such like. But just to have that experience, because we didn't want to speak for them, and twice I was taken aside by a mental health professional, different ones, and I was asked, you know, did you coach them? Did you, you know, they're so confident. Did you coach them? Did you tell them what to say? And I was like, no, I wouldn't dream of coaching them. But then I realized, oh, this is what it looks like when people who are using mental health services trust the team that they're working with and trust themselves. They, they talk from a position of ownership in, in, in such a way that people think that they've been coached. But actually, no, they're just confident in this situation, in this, conf- in this conversation. Yeah. That's, this is interesting. And I really want to get to what an average kind of session might look like for people to be able to paint a more vivid yeah. picture. But just before that, I can't help but think that, that, that people who might be kind of stuck in the mental health system in that they are trying to find di- diagnosis or they are trying to f- find a method or way in which they can mm-hmm. kind of uh, really address the core issues and what's going on with them. I, yeah. I, if it feels that, like you said, that, that allowing that person, like really listening to that person, because like you said, people know when they're really being listened to is almost mm. giving them confidence in themselves. And like you mm. said, if, if we do have the answers within ourselves, we need the confidence to be able to trust ourselves. And yeah. like Seba said, we've spoken to people previously who've been in the system and they've lost confidence in their experience in themselves because because they've been passed around to several different professionals and because, um, you know, like you, you, you mentioned at the start how us, you know, we, we know people we know and they don't know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what, what strikes me so much and what excites me so much about open dialogue is that there's almost like a more hu- there's more humility within the professionals to say yes I have this knowledge but also it's this person's experience and I want this person to be able to reach a point where they can trust their experience and express their experience and that in itself can be and that is definitely part of the healing I feel and so much or several of the people that me and Seb have spoken to they've taught they've talked about that loss of confidence that the lack of of believing in themselves yeah yeah it's really toxic i think for that to be experienced by a human who's already in crisis for whatever level because in this work we think if if you're going up to mental health services because you're in something that's beyond your holding capacity right now whatever is going on for you and then to yeah be in that situation, it's kind of enraging. I think mm. I think I think that humility is a good word. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm really reluctant of sounding like I am a humble mental health professional. Uh, but I think it is really, really important that we that we really believe that people have the capacity to co-create and make their own decisions and reach their own understandings. If we don't, um, that will transmit. Like I said, humans know that as well. And one of the things that we do, I mean, often open dialogue is understood to be anti-medication or anti-certain types of treatment, which actually isn't at all the case. Because if I were anti-something, then it, the, the dialogue would not be open because I'd be telling you not to take the medication. So actually what my job is, is if I've got a colleague who's like, I think medication could be really useful here. My job is to go, and why might it not be? And can we talk about the we have a full discussion in front of the person so that they hear both sides. And equally, I could be like, Hearing Voices Network, it's amazing, blah, 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 I think you should definitely go. And my colleague would be like, well, why would someone not want to go? Why would that be a bad idea? So that we have that discussion, what we call polyphony, we're trying to have as many voices, so that the person, the family that are listening, they get to see that this isn't, there isn't one recommendation. They get to see that they listen and then they make the decision. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Absolutely. So it's kind of built in in that way. Does, does that ever confuse um, 
the patient or the person who's coming to you with a crisis, just in the sense of they hear, you know, you and your colleague kind of debating ways forward. And I, mm. I imagine maybe that sometimes they might, they might almost be at their, at their wit's end and just kind of go like, just tell me, like, you're the ones who know, like, you're the ones who have studied this. You yeah. know what both avenues look like. I'm, like you said, in a crisis mode, I, I'm not even able, I'm not at the, like, in my moment of my life where I should, like, can handle yeah. all the things that are going on. And yeah. I'm coming to you kind of, like, begging you to help me. I know what you're yeah. saying, I agree with that, but does it ever get a moment where they're like, I'm confused and I just want someone to say, turn left or turn right. And I don't want you to tell me, turn left could be a good idea, but also right could also be good. Just give me the direction. Yeah. Does that ever happen? Well, there's, there's two things, two answers to that one. And, and one of the first ones is usually if somebody is in deep crisis, our first priority as a team, which by when I say team, I mean the person, whoever they brought with them and us, us now a team together. Our first priority as a team is how can this feel safe until we meet again? That's our first priority. When do you want to see us again? What might you need until that time? What are we all going to think about that's going to help? make this bearable, livable, manageable for you within the whole menu of things that we can offer that you might think of within your resources and within ours. So it would be an, a, 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 not a great move, really, <laughs> to try and make longer term decisions if someone's in that place. And let's imagine I made a mistake and they said, you're freaking me out now is all talking about these big decisions when I'm and I need to go. I am totally hearing you. That was unhelpful. What do we need to talk about? Park that will come back. So in a in, in crisis, usually, our first priority is thinking about how do we hold you right now? What's needed right now? And then we move forward. The truth is, I think that there aren't black and white easy decisions in mental health, and you come perilously close very often. You know, there's not very many places where you can definitively say, this will work for you and this will not. Um, so... We are in a place of uncertainty, and one of the one of the things in open dialogue, one of the principles of it actually is tolerance of uncertainty. How can we make it bearable that we don't necessarily know yet what's going to be the right way forward? And the way that we can usually do that is going, what is it that we can need so that even if we don't entirely understand yet what's going to be the ultimate thing that's going to kind of move us all forward, how can we feel connected enough? How can you feel that we've each that you know we're with you in it enough? that it, it feels that we can make it tolerable to be in this place right now. And I think that's the humility and honesty that we need to have in mental health services because that's the truth. And I've been working in it a long time. There's not many, very, very rarely are we able to go, don't worry, I got you. Option A is definitely the one. You know, it, it ain't mm -hmm. so. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, we wouldn't have done our job if we've sent somebody all feeling unsafe and with that uncertainty feeling intolerable. It's about how can we, we may not know the longer term decisions, but we can think about what's going to get you through until our next meeting and when do you need that to be and where do you need that bit to be? Because we always ask that as well. Perfect, perfect. That's a, that's a great answer. I wonder before we go any further, because I know Jim has a whole host of uh, in-depth questions. Um, so before he grills you with those, I just want wonder if we can kind of um, paint the picture of what it is the, the a typical open log, uh, open log, open dialogue um, uh, therapy session looks like. I know you're talking about, for example, yeah. having family members yeah. and and so on and yeah. so forth. It might always yeah. sound a bit alien. Um, so yeah, if you could just kind of paint that picture for us. Yeah, I will. So there's certain things that kind of stand, that kind of always happen. One of the first things that happens is the person is invited and they can bring whoever they want to the meeting. And that can include pets, that can include children, can include people who they love very much that are really support to them, could be best friends, could be people on Skype, could be people who they're really struggling with and they need to have conversations with. And they're hoping to have a bit of support about that in the meeting. Or they can come on their own because they're like, there's no one I feel up to having this conversation with or I don't want to right now. Okay, So that's the first thing. People are invited. So, And it's the person themselves who gets to decide that, who needs to be there. And sometimes those people are the professionals as well. It might be a teacher or GP or whatever um, because we there's something we need to talk about that might be really helpful in terms of thinking about the way forward. Second thing is it might be, but it isn't necessarily a therapy session. 
it's therapeutic, hopefully, that everybody feels heard and responded to. But sometimes it could be very businesslike in a way. We're just making some decisions together. And sometimes it's, it can go really deep. And we're all kind of all crying about something very big that's being processed and talked about. So it can kind of go either way. One or many ways. One of the first things that happens in the meeting is the person comes with whoever or whoever they wish to be there. That's up to them. And they will be met by a team. So there's always two mental health professionals, two people working in the team. Could be any type of professional with their two open dialogue practitioners. There has to be two because we need to be able to have a conversation transparently in front of the person. And because the core idea of the model is that we have more than one perspective in the room because we believe in multiple truths. So there's not going to be one person who's going to have all the answers. We're going to bandy some things together. So there's always a team. So what you're going to see always is the person, maybe some other people they brought with them, and a team of two, usually. Very rarely there'd be three of us, but two usually. That meeting could happen in an ideal world in Western Lapland where they have a lot of flexibility and a really lovely implementation. They will meet people anywhere they want to be met. So that could be in their own home, in a cafe, at the park, in the hospital, whatever suits that family. We don't have as much flexibility in our implementation. Generally, it's either in a kind of place in the community that we have or we meet people at home as well. We love it when we can do that because it's kind of, it's in a, in a different atmosphere when you're meeting people on their own turf to them, I think. And then the way that the meeting goes is the team will say to the person, the network, the people who are there, what do we need to talk about today? And they decide. And that is critical. And that becomes the very first bit where we start handing over going, you guys know, we trust you. If it's how to manage the television remote, then that's what we're going to talk about because we trust that you know what's important to talk about. And that's kind of how the meeting goes. We, we, we follow what the family wants to talk about. At various points in the meeting, uh, I will turn to my colleague as a team member and we will have what we call a reflection. And that will be where the family listen. We talk about them in the third person. So I'd be like, so I'm listening to Seb and I'm listening to Jim. And what I heard Seb say was, and I use that as a place to really demonstrate what I've heard and how it's moved me maybe, or curiosities it's left me with. Or that might also be the place I think, I keep thinking about hearing voices network for Seb. I think he'd love it. And then my colleague can go, why do you think that? Maybe it wouldn't, blah, blah, blah. So we have those kind of, the conversations that professionals would otherwise have in their head or in a meeting afterwards, we have them in front of the family. And then we turn back and say, anything you want to comment, anything we got wrong, anything you want to follow up. And this is where the enforced humility comes in because we have these kind of conversations. At the beginning, we were terribly excited by our ideas and quite often family like, right, yeah, completely ignore what you've said and go on with talking about what they wanted to talk about, which is awesome because they're, they're following their own, you know, they know what they need to talk about. And sometimes it sparks conversation in a different way. And then at the end of the meeting, when we work out, you know, when do we need to meet again? Is there anything we need to put in place in order for people to feel safe and okay until we meet again? Um, and uh, who might need to be there? And that's always a question. And the other thing is that we write up notes together with the family. So they write the notes and they sign them. Often they dictate them. And so that meeting happens instead of a whole load of meetings that happen in standard psychiatric care. So in standard psychiatric care, usually, which was pretty much how most mental health services work, you'll meet one or two professionals who'll do an assessment. There'll be a meeting about you often, which you won't be present at. And then you might meet separate professionals to make decisions about your care or for different parts of different things that might be happening are being provided for you. Whereas that meeting is, is the meeting where we kind of try and work out what's going on, make decisions, decide to refer to somebody else. We could refer to psychology or individual therapy, for example. Um, and we check out what, how things are going. And it's also the place where we have really important conversations. So it can be different people can turn up every time. And some people have one session a week for a period of time and some people have one session and they won't have another one for four months it's 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 very much as needed did that is a one question that there. comes up no this is this is all very clear and helpful for me anyway i really appreciate this the one question that comes up for me is you mentioned that if 
for instance, the person involved does not feel like they want to bring anyone, they don't have to bring anyone. But how do you navigate a situation where the person feels like, for instance, they want to bring their dad or they want to bring their brother, but their dad or their brother does not want to take part? Mm. Is did, is there any communication with the dad or the brother or how, how does that go? Um, We'd probably talk about it. Like okay. if, if we'd left it that they were going to invite the brother and they came back and the brother didn't want to come, We'd say, do you want to talk about it? You know, do, do we want to brainstorm how that might, how the, another way for that conversation to go? Would you like us to invite them? Do you think they might enjoy that? What would you like us if we did? What could we say? What would we not say? You know, you, you, you'd navigate that quite carefully. Um, okay. At the same time, people just may not choose to come. And then we can kind of think about, I suppose, the person will think about how they want to have that conversation with them, but maybe not with us. Um, okay. And for people listening who say, I'm really interested in open dialogue, but I do feel that I would need like my mom or my dad present, but I have a feeling that they wouldn't be interested in coming also. That wouldn't, that shouldn't deter them from getting involved no, in the open dialogue process. Don't no. Okay. Open dialogue, you have to think in the way that it works, like in our service and in most services where it's implemented, it isn't a separate therapy. It's just the way that we, it's just what happens if you're if you're referred in to mental health services. This is the way that we work in our patch. Um, so okay. you could come okay. to open dialogue, and we could have a discussion, and you could say, you know, where I'm at, I want diagnosis, and I want meds. That's what works for me. We'd have a chat about it. You're very clear. We'd say, awesome. Let's get you a diagnosis. Let's get you meds. Do you want us to review you in six months' time? Brilliant. <laughs> or you could say all kinds of different things. It's it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapy, if you see what I mean. Some okay. people really wanted that or really need that. That's what's really right for them. And we'd kind of follow their, their lead on that, I guess. Um, to be honest, I haven't often had family members refusing to come. Much more often it's been that people aren't sure whether they themselves are ready to be vulnerable or talk about what's going on for them in front of family members. You know, they're not ready for okay. that conversation yet. But I've very rarely had family members refuse to come. I think often people do um, mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. agree to show up. Um, they might be quite worried about it. I think it could be very easy to imagine you're going to a meeting, I guess, to find out what you did wrong. Uh, because mm. I think people might confuse it with family therapy, thinking we're here to kind of support you changing whatever you've been doing, which isn't at all the case. Open Dialogue understands that people are coming because they are like important members of the team around the support that might be needed at this time, this crisis time. And they're probably also experiencing and being affected by this crisis because we're all connected. You know, you don't, it's very rare <laughs> that one person's having a really difficult time and everybody else is dancing merrily down the street. You know, we're all being, yeah. we're all being affected. Um, so that's, that's a really important part for us mm -hmm. that, that family members feel like we uh, hear them and respect their role and we're, we're kind of here to support everyone as best we can. Great. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned, if I mentioned to you before when we were talking about the the open dialogue documentary about the American psychiatrist move going over to Finland. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But there is a quote from that. I can leave the link in the description for the listeners. But there's a quote that I thought was so important. I'd love to like for you maybe to unpack it a little bit and it was one of the open dialogue workers and he says it's more important that the client will be understood by the people closest to them than the therapist yeah. and for many people that might seem if not contradictory a little strange and I'd, I'd love if you could like unpack that a little bit yeah it's interesting um it's such an important principle, this one, I think. Um, mm. I train people in open dialogue, kind of, in, 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 in all over the world, actually. And, and we talk about this a lot, that sometimes it's very, we, we spend a lot of emphasis on, you know, that people know that we're with them, that we care, uh -huh. that we're kind of, we've got their back. And we have a principle called continuity, which says that the team tries to stay the same for the whole of the person's journey. Because normally okay. in mental health services, people see a different person every few months. But it's not necessarily important that we understand 
there may be things about the culture of that family or the way things have happened in your life that 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 I may never completely understand. But what's important is that you have some flavor of that in your life for yourself, enough for yourself. And the people who are closest to you get it. I think we have it so flipped wrong in mental health services that we more usually create the scenario where some stranger to you who's a professional is paid to in understand you. And they're the person who has the kind of knowledge inside them about how what makes you tick. And that may or may not be passed on to you. And it's very unlikely it will be shared to the people who love you most, who you're going to spend the rest of your life knowing and the rest of your life living alongside. Like it makes no sense at all. Um, so, so this is a principle that says, actually, you're living your life in a web of people who love you, who infuriate you, who you spend time with, who you avoid, who you're fighting with over breakfast, who you're meeting at Christmas. These relationships, we are in this very significant web of relationships, and that, that is the place in which all of us are trying to make sense of our world and, 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 and cope with our struggles and seek support. They're the people who are there for us when we can't get out of bed in the morning. They're the people who watch your vision with us, whatever. Those people are the people that matter. And those relationships are the ones where we need to be able to speak and be met, mm. ideally, in, in, in as good a way as any of us could manage with family. But it's really much more significant than building and it's not to say that there isn't important work that people can do uh, in their own self journey of understanding on a one-to-one -one with a therapist. I've done that for myself and it's still something I facilitate with other people. But in terms of open dialogue, we're like, no, 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 you need the people who are important to you to be here. Mm -hmm. I always remember um, there was a young woman who came to see us and uh, she was there with her boyfriend and we, um, and we were like, oh, great. It's always lovely when people bring people. It was the first meeting. And we said, oh, come on in. And they came in and we said, sit down and said, you know, what's important to talk about? And we had this chat. We have a longer time. We give a longer time than many. We always meet people for about 90 minutes minimum. And, um, and in the middle of that conversation, at a certain point, she told us that she was stockpiling medication because she didn't know if she wanted to live anymore. She was fairly sure she didn't. And she was stockpiling medication to allow herself to, to end her life. And this was something that her boyfriend, who was living with her, had no idea about. Wow. And at a certain point, the conversation almost got taken over by him because he was like, how long? Where has it been going on? Why didn't you tell me? And I was watching them thinking, this is the conversation that really matters. Yeah. This is the one that really, really matters. This one where the person who cares about her most gets to hear about this and that we're all sharing this conversation. That's the safest thing that could happen here. And, um, and at the end of the conversation, uh, we'd come up with a kind of a way forward just, you know, until we could meet again. And, uh, and he said, actually, we didn't read the letter of invitation. So I was just going to read a magazine in the waiting room. I had no idea I was supposed to commit at all. <laughs> and it was only, they were just being polite. <laughs> we said, oh, come on in. He was like, yeah. okay. But he hadn't actually expected to. But it is a good example. It's always stayed with me. I remember looking at the two of them talking, thinking, this is the one person, was one of the people on earth who really needs to know what's happening for her. And he's right here hearing it. And I'm glad I was there too. And I'm, you know, it was a meaningful journey we went with them. And, and, and so what happens if... express that without you guys? You know, maybe we were holding it some way. Mm. And what happens if they can't be there for, you know, let's say the person in need, the person that they would like to be there, they, know how, they no longer have a relationship with them for it's mm -hmm. not feasible. Potentially, uh, yeah. they've passed on. They're no, you know, they're no yeah. longer with us. What in those yeah. situations? Obviously, it's not ideal. But what happens there? Does that mean open dialogue's yeah. no longer the course for them? They have to find a different no, route. No. Or can open dialogue no. still work? Well, you can totally do open dialogue because, in a way, open dialogue is about the principles of being transparent, um, of kind of having more than one perspective, of understanding that what we call symptoms have meaning and that we can talk about them. It's about co-creating understandings and decisions. You can do all of those with one person. And um, I think, you know, we often use the question, if so-and-so were here, what do you think they'd say? Like we can have a conversation with the voice, 
my mother's voice in my head, if that makes sense. And we have had a chair for people who have passed. Absolutely. I've had, I've had, I've had a number of sessions where we've had a chair for someone really significant who's passed and we want to represent that they're here. And we often think if they were here, what would they say? And what would they, what would they have said if they just heard you say this? Honor that That's in some beautiful. way and have them as part of the conversation. Yeah. It matters because very often they are there. You know, Absolutely. They're, they're speaking. They're very alive for us. Absolutely. We've loved. Is that the, a question is, I remember when we spoke, I was, I was um, aware of the open dialogue in relation to treating uh, schizophrenia or psychosis. Mm-hmm. But I remember you made it, yeah. you made it a point to tell me you now that actually this is not just for these conditions and that we use it for a variety of different conditions. So could you tell us yes. a bit, a bit about the variety of conditions that you treat um, and perhaps yep. maybe like a good story or two of you know, are there um, people that you've worked with that have come into remission per se? And we'd love to hear that. First thing is to explain why people associated with psychosis. And that's because when they started working this way, they were the people in Finland. They were part of a national study that was looking at outcomes for people with psychosis. So they were able to compare in relation to that specific condition, their outcomes compared to everybody else. And their outcomes are extremely good <laughs> with psychosis and schizophrenia compared to uh, kind of treatment as usual, other other types of services. Um, and that was really useful because very often people think that a more psychological, more talking type therapy wouldn't doesn't have its place in something like psychosis, schizophrenia, which is so often being treated primarily with meds, though that's now changing. Well, it's not changing that it's primarily treated with meds, but we're also looking at other kind of talking therapies as well. And open dialogue uh, is quite different in that they they work with a number of people who present with psychosis and schizophrenia, and they don't give them meds at all. Um, so that in that sense, it, it, that's one of the reasons why open dialogue is so um, has become quite famous in relation to those outcomes, because they're unusual and they um, they're quite exciting, especially now as we understand a bit more about the side effects of some of those medications. And still, some people in, in, in Western Lambland also use medication and find it very helpful. So there's there's more than one story, but it's just much less generally. So that's just kind of clearing up why psychosis is so associated with open dialogue. And in the UK, there's a number of trials where people are looking at it specifically in relation to psychosis. But as it was designed, it was designed for a way for the mental health service to be run, regardless. So if you, and so in Western Lapland, if you're feeling like this is not good, I need some help. I need more help than I can kind of cope with right now in my usual resources. You pick up the telephone and you ring mental health. You ring direct line to mental health services. You don't have to go through a GP, nothing. You don't have to fill up a form. No one has to tell you whether you're due the service or not. You ring them up and you say, hi, I think I need help. And they go, okay, we believe you. You've rung the right place how urgently do you need to be met, do you think, and who needs to be at that meeting? So they have a principle of immediate help and immediate access. And that means that access to mental health services is not predicated on a, a level of risk or, or diagnosis. Uh, there's no gateway, you see what I mean? Uh, anyone can access mental health services for support. If you think you need them, then you do. And that's how they work it. Therefore, they will see anyone <laughs> with whatever. And that's how they run their service and how they've been running it since the 1980s, which is now 40 years. Yeah. So therefore, open dialogue isn't a way of just work. It's not a treatment, per se, of working with psychosis. It's a way of meeting people who are in crisis, which is pretty much how you could understand what mental health services are and do at some level. Um, there's all kinds of different ways in which we can experience being in crisis. And for some of us, it means that we've can't, you know, we don't want to be eating anymore. And for some of us, it might mean that we're scared to leave our rooms. And for some of us, it might be that we can't, we don't want to live anymore and we're trying to stop living. And for some of us, you know, there's so many different ways in which we can be in crisis. But um, in open dialogue more generally in Western Lapland, there isn't a criteria you need to meet in order to have that help. And they will see anybody and use open dialogue as the way in which they meet people and decide what could be helpful together with them. 
And that's what open dialogue is. That, that's what I would really love for people listening to this to take away, that the, meet, the, the conversation can be really therapeutic and people can reach understandings and feel very met, we hope. But at its core, it's a way of just meeting people and being with them. And, and and kind of training people into a way of really deeply listening and um yeah and and being with being with people and helping them navigate their way through what might be helpful with all the resources of the mental health team at their disposal like whatever they might want to do they might need social work OT or something like this or or the resources of the community they might need something else something very different so therefore, in the clinic where I work, we call it a clinic. It's not really a clinic, uh, but but the kind of pathway. We have an open dialogue pathway, which means that people in a particular geographical area, um, if they're sent into mental health services from their GP, if we've room for them on our pathway, they come to us. And that could be anybody um, with anything. So it could be, oh, gosh. Um, every every spectrum of kind of problem that you can imagine and um and some people can join us for a very short period of time um you know i'm i'm thinking of a it's it's tricky i'm it's tricky for me to give individual situations because my service is so small that people are really identifiable um but i will tell you one thing about the research because the other thing is we don't necessarily use diagnoses um, as a way to categorize or, or, or kind of inform the decision making. Um, we talk to people about diagnosis and kind of what might be helpful or useful in that. And when sometimes when people find that like that, yeah, that's a route I want to go. I'm really curious about that. I think that would be really helpful. Like a lot of people these days are looking for, you know, they're kind of curious about their own neurodivergence, for example, and they're kind of actively saying, look, is there insight from that that could be helpful for me? Please pursue it. Um, so then we can kind of, we can, we can go that route and try and get some input on either psychiatric diagnosis or the type diagnosis, if that's going to be helpful. Um, but sometimes it isn't, you know, actually, maybe more often people kind of go, no, this is, it's helping me to talk about it. And this just seems like a useful place. And next week, I think I'd like to bring my brother. And we kind of, we kind of follow, well, the clients knows, I guess, <laughs> like we kind of follow people as to kind of what they're thinking might be useful. And, and and try to draw on the spectrum of things that might be helpful. But as such, I've, we've worked within our clinic with people who've been very suicidal, you could say. Um, we've worked with people who hear voices, um, some of whom were finding them very distressing and who now either found a way to live with them or, or for some of whom actually they seem to have gone back. Um, We've worked with people who are highly anxious. We've worked with people who, yeah, I don't know, all, a whole spectrum of, it's it's kind of like, it's it's a sort of just a common or garden community mental health service, really. Mm. So we see people with all kinds of challenges. Thanks for that. What's Isabel, interesting, I, I think. Just, sorry, sorry. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, um, it feels important to almost re-emphasize this towards the end of the conversation that open dialogue views and um, sees mental health sees that mental health can deteriorate when there are relationships that are not so healthy in that person's life and when the environment is not particularly healthy in that person's life and that it, addressing these can help and i say this because particularly with schizophrenia and psychosis i think people think oh that's just a condition and like mm. you, you know it's best to give them medication and maybe they can do okay with medication and uh, but, but i mean we can't we can't quote unquote heal them you know that's just that and i think it's interesting that open dialogue is effective for people with psychosis and schizophrenia as well as people like you said who are just who are who have, are experiencing quite high anxiety or people who are depressed yes it's right across the spectrum. I would say more so than it's about necessarily assuming that there's something that's not working in their relationships. It's that people, one of the things that we think is really detrimental within this model is that people are left alone with really unbearable circumstances. And 
loneliness being one of the hardest things for humans, one of the hardest things to bear. And I might be left alone with my suicidal feelings, like I don't know how to talk about them, and I don't, I'm barely talking about them to myself, and I haven't spoken them to the people I love most. And I'm being left alone with them, and that leaves me very, very vulnerable. Psychosis is a really good example of having had experiences which almost by definition other people aren't sharing. So I'm probably seeing, hearing, smelling, understanding things that other people don't join me in. Like I'm, I'm, I'm quite alone in my reality, yeah? Which is a shockingly uh, dangerous place for the human. And, um, and so open dialogue would say, it's just so important that we are with and that we're curious and we want to try and find a safe enough space where people can really share what's happening for them and how they're feeling about it and find some way not to be left alone with that reality, some way of sharing it. And, and, and I think some people find that meds are really good at taking the edge off. Some people find that that's not so. I th it's, a, it's a core idea. I think that it would be really that it's really critical to provide a space where people can bring a sense of curiosity and a support to understanding what's happening in their life and where these experiences, what they might be connected to. And um, yeah, I think our, I think our society <laughs> leaves people alone with things a lot. We don't quite know how to share the biggest, deepest things, especially the ones that make us more different or the ones that are really hard. Because how do I talk to you about the alien when you can't see them and you're going to treat me like I'm mad? And we have a lot of evidence now coming that people who have unusual experiences, people don't know how to meet them. You know, they don't know how to, uh, how to have those conversations. And a big part of what we do in our training is helping staff um, be present and be human in conversations about unusual and scary experiences. Yeah, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I think that's that's a core core idea that people are. No, I appreciate that a lot. So thank you. Uh, I I just have two more questions. Seb, do you have something to ask before I ask two final questions? You go ahead, Jim. Don't worry. Don't worry. You go ahead. Okay. Um, is before we close, is there something that you feel? that is necessary to talk or, or share about open dialogue that maybe we, that hasn't come up in this conversation. And for someone who's either done a little bit of research about open dialogue or quite new to the area, is there something that you would like to share that yeah, hasn't come up at all? <laughs> I think um, I always make the point, I've probably made it about five times, that it's both therapeutic and not just a therapy because actually it kind of blows people's minds slightly that it has the uh, temerity <laughs> that it dares to say how we should run mental health services um, when we all think we understand how that's meant to happen. Um, so it does offer an alternative to, alternative to a medically dominated model, but mm -hmm. not one that excludes the medical voice because that wouldn't be open. So it's just kind of much more parity of voices um, within open dialogue. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think there's some there's a quality and idea in uh, in open dialogue that I really like. Well, there's several, but one of them that I don't think I've talked too much about is that how very easy it is for us to slip into what we call aboutness. So if I'm thinking about somebody and I start using my psychological knowledge and understanding to decide what I think about them and what I think is wrong with them and what their label is likely to be. I've stopped relating to them as a human and I've started thinking about them as the object of my psychological wisdom, you know, and there's something going on about that for me, most likely. Maybe I'm feeling a bit safer because I've managed to bring the world my knowledge and maybe I'm feeling good about myself. But, but there is a, that is, there, there is that aboutness in a lot of the ways of models, however benign we understand however well-meaning, and all of them are. I, I train mental health professionals all the time. They're a really decent bunch of people who are often really trying to kind of connect and do a fantastic job, and in many places are, uh, despite, I think, the system rather than because of it. But this aboutness is quite a core stance. And in Open Dialogue, we're trying to park that and do what we call withness. So we're like, 
it matters less what my psychological wisdom gem that I'm going to share with you here is than that you have an experience where you feel like someone's with you, which is helping you to be with yourself, which is creating more space for the wisdom that's within you to come through. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Isabel. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, it's very helpful for, for to, to reaffirm that with listeners that it is a witness, witness. And yeah. again, to reaffirm that the open dialogue practitioner has trust and faith that the person in question has the ability to help themselves. So, yeah. so thanks, thanks and for reminding us. Not on their own. Yeah. Like they have the, the, we all have, every single one of us has the ability to kind of eventually work out, feel into what's right for us. Um, we shouldn't have to do it alone. Hmm. So how can we be with people so that they can find their own answers? And is all, I, I may have missed this, but um, I just want to, a lot of our listeners are, are mainly from Ireland and the UK. And mm -hmm. I wondered for someone who's listening to this, who wants to start their journey in open dialogue, you spoke about how in Lapland they can call and they'll be, you know, be taken up for, at first hand. And how does that happen in the UK and slash Ireland? Is it the same process? Yeah. Can they call their GP? Is it, um, you know, you said you work with the NHS. Is it funded by the NHS? How does it happen? Or is it a, a bit more difficult? Well, in Ireland, there's only two small projects. Our project, which has been going for about ooh, over a decade now, and a new project, um, which we, um, which I trained in Navan, which I'm really proud of, so they're doing great, um, two mental health teams offering open dialogue as part of the way that they offer their service there. So it's kind of geographical in Ireland at the moment. You're either in our patch or you're not. But I think it's an interesting time for open dialogue because um, it's just, I think in the last two, two, three years, there's been loads more articles written and implementation is sort of exploding worldwide. And one of the things that's happening is there's a very big trial in the NHS. I think there's about eight mental health trusts doing a randomized control trial of open dialogue. And they've just gone through the first phase of that and it's looking really good. They're doing that for crisis care. So they're doing that for people coming in, in kind of crisis situations. So, um, and then there's lots of other kind of mental health trusts that are implementing open dialogue as well. So in the UK, you have a slightly better chance, but it will sort of depend whether your local trust um, has decided to implement it or not, but loads of them are and so and so at the moment it's really within kind of national health services the hsc or the nhs uh, in the uk and ireland and it would be about checking out your local service and seeing if they have it have it and if they don't it might be about writing a letter and asking them why not um yeah perfect now thank you very much and i'm sorry for any listener who's coming from uh a different country uh, yeah i haven't <laughs> asked about, about their services but unfortunately we're in about 32 different countries so we can't go through everyone but i'm sure a little google search will uh, will help them out but jim unless yeah. you unless you have any other questions i we um i have got the final question for for is but i just don't want to make i just want to make sure that jim jim is all done yeah no that's on me i just wanted to say before we close that i i sincerely hope that this will be becoming the future of mental health care and I really appreciate you coming on because it, I, I know, like you said, we're, we're geographically limited somewhat in Ireland at the moment, but I really hope that this can help spread the word even further and have more people talk about it, more people reach out to GPs. And uh, yeah, I hope this is really uh, can add to the push of open dialogue in the near future. Yeah. And <laughs> um, with that, well, I'll ask the final question is, uh, which is how do you keep on top of your mental health? What are the little tips mm. and tricks that you do? Uh, daily, monthly, whatever it may be that you think just helps you center and helps helps out. I have a spiritual practice that's really core, um, which is a whole other conversation. I started to have a gym last time. Uh, core shamanism, that's very important to me. Nature-based connection, something about being, I live in a very beautiful place. Something about sitting with my back to a tree grounds me every time. Um, something about looking up at the stars and getting a sense of perspective on me and my life. That really helps. I have a little dog <laughs> that is my, you know, so fashionable and cliched now, but I have a little dog who usually on my lap is not here. But that's, I guess, another really core way for me. And beyond that, I think um, there's something about 
constantly willing to change. Yeah, something about I'm still always learning new things and I'm always putting a new lens to myself and kind of kind of going, how could I, that was a bit crap, I, or I got a bit activated, how can I mind myself better in that? I think it's changed from when I was younger, I was might have been thinking more about what should I do and how should I communicate? And now I'm much more about, oh shit, that was really painful. How can I mind myself? I think that's become a better question for me. Yeah. Love that. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, we'll put all the links that Jim's mentioned and that is of um, things will be, will be useful in our in our show notes um, so the listeners can find any more information there. Um, but we just want to take, take the time to say thank you for your time. I know it's been months in the waiting, so uh, thank you for having some patience with us and uh, oh, finally getting around to pleasure. do this. It's been more than worth the wait. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Lillian.